But now you got me thinking about working on a dream. I'm not quite there yet. I'm somewhere in between. I hear you talking how I deserve the best. A voice inside my head keeps saying, "Don't settle for less." Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, August 26, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Jenna Tessa Fox. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, in many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared online at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. Her podcast, Spotlight, can be found on the Broadway Radio Network. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. How are you doing? Oh, I'm very good. Michael is, I think, a Provincetown or something That's along right. those That's lines. Right. He's a Provincetown, and he'll be back next week. Uh, he felt that uh, Sunday morning might just be a little bit too early to be getting up to work at Provincetown, and I agree. Uh-huh. He, I <laughs> hope he's having a wonderful time. So first up, uh, Jenna and I caught up with Pretty, Pretty Woman, the musical, over at the Nederlander. So uh, Jenna, in fact, we saw the same performance from just a few seats away. So tell us, yes. what was your take on Pretty Woman? Oh, my take on Pretty Woman. All right. Uh, So let's get this out of the way. This is a really bad time for Pretty Woman, the musical. This is the era of Me Too and increased awareness of sex trafficking and the dangers women face on the street. So a fairy tale about a woman who quite literally sells herself to a billionaire for $3,000 isn't exactly helping, but Okay, it's a fairy tale. And it's one that's been a major part of pop culture for almost 30 years. So, but the mu- new musical with a score by Brian Adams and Jim Valance and a book by J.F. Lawton and the late Gary Marshall, who wrote and directed the original film, respectively, uh, it's really not the fairy tale we need for this day and age. Uh, the musical is this candy-colored fable about the unlikely romance between a streetwalker and a corporate raider. It's a perfect example of when poorly written shows happen to very talented casts. Um, Not to speak ill of the dead, because Gary Marshall did a lot of amazing work in his career, his libretto for this musical, and it was apparently from his bio in the the program, it was his first attempt at book writing. Uh, It falls painfully flat. Um, Along with original screenwriter J.F. Lawton, the book sticks to the original film pretty much line by line. It almost feels like it's held prisoner by its source material. And this is a problem because the best adaptations expand on the original material. They become their own works of art. I mean, the inevitable comparison is Pygmalion to My Fair Lady. Uh, Obviously, the show is based on that story. Lerner and Lowe celebrated Shaw's original play while creating something distinct and wonderful. Marshall and Lawton could have tried that with this musical, but they played it safe and they wound up with a very weak script that highlights the flaws of the original film rather than fixing them. With one exception, one flaw is corrected, and I will give them credit for that, and no spoilers, but it got a great round of applause. So, yes, one problem from the film is fixed. Uh, Adams, Brian Adams and Blance's score is just bland and generic and... It's, it evokes 1980s pop sometimes. The show is set in the 1980s, but it's inconsistent. I mean, some of the song titles are something about her. Luckiest girl in the world. You're beautiful. Never give up on your dream. 
it offers some clues into the depths that the show reaches and the complexity of the central characters. Spoilers, there just isn't much. Um, Vivian's first song is called Anywhere But Here. It's a big, belty number about how she doesn't want to be a streetwalker anymore. Her last song is called I Can't Go Back, a big, belty number about how she's decided not to be a streetwalker anymore. And that's the extent of her character development. At least Eliza Doolittle wails what's to become of me when she realizes she can't go back to selling flowers after living as a lady. Vivian doesn't even get that much. If her big moment in Act 2 expressed any kind of fear or concern about what she'll do next, there could have been some kind of emotional peak. But her greatest concern seems to be that the man who is quite literally paying her to have sex with him doesn't like her as much as she likes him. And it could also be interesting if she liked the life that he introduced her to, but wasn't that interested in him, but then we wouldn't have a fairy tale. Uh, meanwhile, Edward's songs are all pretty much about how Vivian is different from other girls, and she makes him feel different from how other girls in the past made him feel. Again, there's just no real growth from first meeting to final kiss, and he's the character we're supposed to see change the most as he gives up his corporate raider life to be a kinder, more supportive man. And we couldn't have a song about that. That could have been an interesting moment. And no, we don't get that. Uh, fortunately, there's the cast. Uh, Samantha Barks deserves a better show to make her Broadway debut in, but we can't always get what we want. She sings very well. She smiles very brightly. She's charming. And I had to wonder how she would have done in My Fair Lady instead of this one. Uh, Andy Carl is also very charming as ever, and he very nicely conveys the self-loathing that's hiding not very far underneath Edward's skin. Uh, watching him soften up over the course of the show is interesting and fun. He adds some good complexity to a rather weakly written character. Uh, Jason Danieli is uh, appropriately smarmy as the smarmy lawyer, but he gets one verse of one song to sing. And how can you put Jason Danieli? in a musical and only give him one verse of one song to sing. Uh, so that was very disappointing, but it's always wonderful to see him on the stage. Uh, Eric Anderson plays dual roles as a street hustler and as the general manager of the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and does some very nice work balancing the demands of those roles, the coarseness of the street hustler, the refinement of the general manager. He does some very nice work, but his big song in act one is literally teaching Vivian how to be a proper lady and teaching her how to dance and teaching her how to behave in a formal setting. And after explaining to her, here's how to be somebody you're not, he finishes with, but just remember, be yourself. <laughs> Which, yeah, like I said, the writing has problems. Uh, Orfe is brassy and crass as Vivian's best friend, Kit. She provides a very nice counterpoint to Vivian's sweetness. Uh, in a rare departure from the movie, she is not a drug addict. And she does have a dream to improve her life. So that's definitely an improvement over the original. And again, with better writing, Orfe could have created a much more interesting character. But she does still get some really good moments. So cheers to her. Uh, Brian Callie and Alison Blackwell deserve some real praise. Uh, they perform the scene, the famous moment from the movie, where Vivian and Edward go to the opera and see La Traviata. So those two actors perform some segments from La Traviata. Uh, as you know, as a counterpoint to Edward's solo. It's a really lovely moment, and it got some of the evening's biggest applause, which says something. The uh, Some of the biggest applause came from moments that were not written for this show. Uh, but they sang really beautifully, and they were a highlight. It's a very short scene, but really spectacular. 
uh, Jeremy Mitchell's direction is I, fine, I guess. But again, he seems really trapped by the source material. So a lot of the staging and the scenery, uh, sorry, scenery by David Rockwell and the costumes by Greg Barnes, uh, Kenneth Posner and Philip Rosenberg's lighting. I mean, all of that combined with Mitchell's direction just feels trapped by the movie. It's not trying to be its own thing. It's not trying to be a musical. It's just let's move this movie onto the stage with nothing new or very little new at that. And I think that's the problem's biggest weakness. They're trying too hard to stick to the original movie from 30 years ago rather than letting it be its own thing. And the show could have been a lot better if they had taken some risks and taken a step away from the source material and created something new and taken it from Pygmalion to My Fair Lady. They had an opportunity to do something really cool and didn't. So this was not one of the better things I've seen this year uh, or this season. Uh, But I will give absolute credit to the cast. They are throwing their all into it and they are finding some depths where the writers did not put any in. So cheers to them. I will say that one of my readers said something interesting this week uh, and uh, see if you agree. And that is that uh, Jason Danieli and Andy Carl might have done better by changing roles. I can see Jason Danieli in the lead of the show. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that obviously resonates with both of you, too. So uh, but that, I thought that was a very good perception. That Yes. Oh, my God. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and not not to say that Andy Carl doesn't do some nice work, but uh, yeah, it's just uh, there's uh, so much when you see a cast that talented on the stage. All I could think of what could was what could have been, and there's a lot that could have been with this show, and it's disappointing that it isn't there. So Jenna and I uh, sat one row and a couple of seats apart. Uh, and we saw exactly the same show. <laughs> yes. exactly, exactly the same show. stalking me. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> Every time I show up at the theater, uh, Jenna's there right before me and in better seats Ooh. than me. It's not fair. Ah. It's not fair, man. <laughs> you know? So I agree, you know, in what Peter and Michael said last week and what Jenna is saying this week. Um, the only thing I really have to add to it is that uh, – and I think um, – I'm not the first one to saying that is that uh, Samantha Barks, she she really could win a Tony if not for this show. I I think that this show will prevent her from winning a Tony. I think that she was great in this. I think Andy Carl is an amazing talent who is not well directed in this show. I, I thought the overall direction of the show was really bad, and I it made mm-hmm. me think. Uh, it made me think that. The uh, the show was very entertaining, and it had uh, the potential to be a really great show. And I feel like uh, because it was a show in development, it really needed a very strong director and a very strong producer. And Paula Wagner, who is best known for being a Hollywood producer and being Tom Cruise's producing partner, um, was possibly out of her depth here. We needed a strong Broadway producer that could guide the development of the show and say to Brian Adams, we need more specific songs. We need yeah. less songs. This, this easily could have done with three less songs, mm-hmm. three or even four less songs. Uh, because I felt like I've seen Andy Carl in lots of things. And he, I felt as though not only Andy, but other characters, you're wandering around the stage. I wanted to take a staple gun and staple their feet to the stage and say, <laughs> stand and sing. Tell me yeah. the story. 
Instead, we kept on having big production numbers, which I... I'm not a fan of the big production number when it's in place of moving the story forward. And I mm. think that Jerry Mitchell is amazing, an amazing choreographer. And I'm haven't been a big fan of his direction so far. Yeah. Um, there was one. Oh, sorry. No, no, there was one. Oh, one. oh, there was one moment that you know really made me clench my fists uh, towards the end of the show. As Vivian is singing, we see Edward who has established over and over again his fear of heights. It's a major character point. He, for the first time, walks out onto the balcony of his hotel suite. Mm-hmm. And it's been established over and over. He never goes out there. For the first time, we see him walk out onto his balcony. And is this made into a moment where we learn more about the character? And why is he finally ready to take that step? It's done in the background. It's done in half light while someone else is singing downstage. And this character is finally building up the nerve to step somewhere he's never stepped before. And no, we don't get a song. He doesn't even get, barely gets to sing. And he's not singing about that when he finally does start singing from the balcony. He's not singing about how he's ready to take new steps. And again, a moment like that could have been great where we finally see him taking, you know, physically taking a new step. And there is so little is made of it. I, I totally agree with you. And I noticed that as well. And I, uh, and this is again where a a better uh, storyteller, insofar as direction and producer goes, they could have. I, I don't recall. It seems like all the scenery was on tracks. There's no turntable there because I was thinking that I'd that upstage one. that upstage thing. If they had been able to turn that around and have Edward facing as he was coming mm-hmm. to the thing, and Peter brought up last week that whole that whole section of I don't kiss on the lips uh, that could have been a whole song and and the uh the thing went by where she kissed him on the lips uh when they they, she's starting to fall in love with him in the bed and there were so many missed moments but boy we have another big production number here let's have a big Mm -hmm. dance and loud number and i was like you missed the you missed the beats of telling the story uh so Pretty Woman has the beginnings of what could be a great um, a great musical, and let's hope that somebody else takes a shot at it at Encores 25 years from now. Yeah, it could be really good. I hope it will be. <laughs> All right, next up. Uh, Michael and I already talked about the Argyle Theater's Hairspray production, but Peter got a chance to get out to Babylon, the, the village of Babylon, and see it. So uh, tell us about your experience with Hairspray. Well, the first thing I want to say is that um, the reason I went out there is because Evan Pappas is artistic director, and here's a full disclosure, and that is the fact that come September 18th at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below, we are going to be doing a show together. Uh, So um, we are um, going to be doing... Um, I'm an MC, and um, I've written the patter, and um, we have celebrities such as George Dvorsky, Sally Mays, Julia Murney, Kelly Rabke, Sal Viviano, um, plenty of others too, coming out to sing, and here's the name of the show, 
the best songs cut from the best musicals sung by the best singers who never sang them. So uh, that's what we're doing. So anyway, uh, Evan said, come on out, you know, come see Hairspray. And uh, I said, sure. You know, um, ironically enough, I was uh, I had someplace else to go. I was going to get the car out of the garage. So fine. So I went out and I, you know, I expected to see a, a, a decent production of uh, Hairspray. Well, it was spectacular. It was really well done. And here's the thing I'm going to say that's going to um, really be controversial. And that is um, I've now seen six productions of Hairspray starting with the original and i don't believe that i have ever seen anybody as good as katie gerati who is spelled g-e-r-a-g-h-t-y so i am assuming that's how it's pronounced playing tracy um i i, I marissa jarrett Whitaker was certainly fine but she played it with a bit of a wink especially right from the beginning with those uh-ohs in um good morning baltimore and it was amazing to see this young woman do it with great sincerity. And that's what she had more than anybody else I've ever seen in this role. And that's what impressed me so much. So she was really terrific. Now, um, it closes today, so nobody's going to see it. Um, uh, nobody else is going to see it. And more to the point, um, I do understand that Babylon is a good hour away from New York if the traffic is um, light. But what I will say, if we have Long Island listeners – and you haven't experienced the Argyle Theater yet, I think you really should on a number of levels because the professionalism I saw here um, in the production by Annette Pietro Polo is her name. I mean, everybody in it was really wonderful. I, I was very, very, very impressed by um, John Salvatore, who played Wilbur, and Jason Simon, who played Edna. And um, a wonderful performance by Malcolm Franklin as Seaweed. Really, they were all terrific. They really were. And um, done not on a, remotely on a shoestring, but certainly done economically and really made every little thing count. So um, I was terrifically impressed. I swear that I would be saying this even if Evan and I weren't working together on September 18th at 7 and 9.30, by the way. Uh, but the real bottom line, if you're on Long Island, you're going to have a nice time there, I think. For another reason, it's a converted movie theater. And the one thing about those converted movie theaters is there's leg room. And ironically enough, the woman behind me talking to her friend said, wow, look at all this leg room. It sure isn't like Broadway. And it sure isn't. You know, I mean, Tommy Toon could have Shula Hensley sitting on his lap and it It'd be plenty of room for both of them, you know. So, so I think that's really um, an asset too. I know that nobody goes to the to the theater to worry about leg room. You're really concerned what's on stage, but what was on stage was so impressive. I really have a feeling that uh, their upcoming productions, uh, which include Peter and the Star Catcher, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, you know, the Macon Schwartz show, that's pretty good to see. Uh, we don't get to see that very often. Certainly, Broadway hasn't yet. And then they're doing Spring Awakening and the producers. So. Uh, um, really, Long Islanders uh, don't hesitate to get to this charming little village where there are some very nice restaurants. It's a wonderful atmosphere. So make it happen. Go to the Argyle Theater. Great. So uh, we're three for three on the Argyle Theater. Uh, Michael, Peter, and I really enjoyed our time out there. So, uh, yeah, make your way out to the Argyle, and they're playing all year round. And we talked with Evan, uh, I guess, in June or July uh, about his plans coming up for the theater. So uh, get back to those episodes and uh, take a listen to his interview as well. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting to me, too, um, there's a line in uh, Hairspray which says, live television. 
nothing like it. Well, live theater, there's nothing like it. But I will say something else. It was, uh, uh, and I wonder if this was a conscious choice uh, or if the uh, the actor and the director just didn't get the joke. But you know, if, um, if those who know Hairspray well know that the uh, act one opener Act two opener, sorry, is the big dollhouse where uh, Tracy and her mother and so many others are in prison for causing a disturbance in downtown Baltimore over race relations. So anyway, um, it ends with uh, Edna singing, for me, much the way uh, Rose does in Gypsy. That's that's the joke of it. It's the exact Mm -hmm. same um, reading on that. Uh, Jason Simon didn't do that. He just sang for B as if it were two other notes. And I'm wondering if that's the case, that they really think that um, Gypsy isn't very much in the public consciousness and uh, that uh, people wouldn't get the joke. So um, I don't know. I don't know. But it it was interesting to me that um, the aping of Rose doing for me in Gypsy did not happen. All right. So, uh, Peter... Was this on the same trip that you headed up to the Berkshires uh, to see the Petrified fl- Forest? No, um, it was on the same <laughs> I almost trip. Said, <laughs> I almost said the Petrifi- Petrified Florist, which is a whole different show. <laughs> it sure is, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess that would really be uh, Seymour in um, <laughs> Shop Forest, don't you think? Um, but anyway... <laughs> so, uh, no, it was on the same trip where I, where I went to um, the Rhino Theater in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey, uh, to see The Emperor's New Clothes, the first collaboration between Steve Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens, a children's show. You may say, my God, why are you going to that? Well, the thing is that, um, as James has mentioned many times, I uh, do a column every Friday for Music Theater International, and this is a Music Theater International show that I've never written about, so I went out there, and it was a terrific production, really wonderfully done. Um, but I'll tell you what, was, what really astonished me. Um, there's, there's, for some reason, uh, there's a song about animals, and um, there's a, about snails climb, and they leave some slime. And I swear to you, do you know what the next line was? I swear this is true. I don't expect you to believe it. <laughs> Both of the people looked at each other and sang, perfect rhyme. I mean it, honestly. It's so all of us, I'll tell you, suddenly there was a bark of laughter from me. Uh, from the theater people are turning around and said, what the hell, why is that funny? Um, so anyway, so it was that trip that I saw uh, both um, Hairspray and uh, The Emperor's New Clothes. No, the Berkshires trip was on Wednesday because they were doing a matinee and I did have to get back. So I'm six hours driving in one day, but worth it. Worth it. A wonderful production in the Petrified Forest, a play you don't get to see very often, of course, um, from way back when. Robert Sherwood wrote it. And um, this is about people uh, in a roadside cafe um, who who's peace and quiet, if they have it, um, is interrupted by Duke Mantee, uh, a criminal on the run, and his uh, henchmen, who are certainly uh, ready to shoot at any given moment. And it's a play that starts off very, very slowly. You think, my God, when is something going to happen? But Sherwood is very careful to introduce characters here that are of more than moderate interest. And one is Alan Squire, brilliantly performed by an actor named David Adkins, really phenomenal, about a guy who hasn't had much luck, um, doesn't have any money. You know why? He's a writer. 
Yeah. All right. So um, he's he's had a, a, a tough existence. He doesn't even have 30 cents to pay for his meal. Um, so he's really in tough shape. But he catches the eye of um, Gabby, Gabriella, um, who works there. Her It's her father's um, place. And uh, her grandfather hangs around there because he has nothing to do except tell stories of his life that nobody particularly wants to hear. And she actually was born in France. And um, then the family came over, but the mother missed France and went back. And I'm sure there was more to it than she just missed France. But um, Gabriella really would love to get back to France. And in a very (laughs) uh, unexpected way, Alan will make her will allow her to do that. So it's it's a terrific play, and I hope um, it's just the beginning of a renaissance for it that other people saw it who have influence in New York and say, wow, you know, we need, we need a production of this in New York. And while, of course, there were, you know, quite a few people in the cast because it's one of those 30s plays when there used to be quite a few people in the cast, um, they did cut it down a little in terms of cast and uh, with a little doubling. But all it's told, um, I think it's something that um, one of our nice theater companies like the Mint or uh, Lincoln Center should really take a look at. Um, David Auburn did a phenomenal job of directing, and of course, he usually is a writer, but uh, boy, he's a good director too, so we're very glad to have that. Now, what I want to talk about more than anything else is that the Berkshire Playhouse uh, is celebrating its 90th year, which is pretty good because a lot of theaters started way back when and certainly didn't remotely last. And here it is. Uh, it's gone through a renovation in the last few years, um, so it's very comfortable. And um, they, they've had a, a season that um, is very eclectic because uh, they did Church and State, you know, that play by Jason O'Dell Williams. And they did um, a something called coming back like a song that is described as a play about Irving Berlin, Harold Arlen and Jimmy Van Usen. Um, people that I don't think ever worked together, but I could be wrong about that. Lee Calcham, who's a veteran playwright, uh, was in Broadway a long time ago and was directed by Greg Edelman. So then they did hair. They did um, Tarzan for the children's theater, as well as the Lion King Jr. But Harriet Harris is there for one more week doing Sister Mary Ignatius. And I bet she's terrific. When you expect Harriet Harris to be good as Sister Mary Ignatius, that um, crazy nun um, that Christopher Durang wrote about. Uh, it's also on a double bill with the actor's nightmare. And then they're doing a play by Pirandello. Yeah, occasionally you see six characters in search of an author, and a little less occasionally, right you are if you think you are, two wonderful plays, but here they are doing Naked. It's a new version by a playwright named Nicholas Wright. But, wow, I mean, if you can't get to the theater um, between September 28th and October 28th to see Naked, by all means, you know, think about next year. Of course, it's a wonderful part of the world, the Berkshires, um, because this is in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And, you know, there are other theaters around, too. You can go to Williamstown. You can go to Barrington Stage. You you can really make a good time of it. But um, I didn't have much time, and I really want to see The Petrified Forest because – Broadway of yesteryear is of great interest to me, and um, I was not disappointed at all. After I uh, got in the car and had three hours to drive back, I said, this has been a wonderful day. I am so glad I did it, and I'm very, very impressed that uh, the Berkshire Festival, uh, Berkshire Theatre Group, as it's called, has not lost a step since I first went there in 1967. So I'm very, very pleased with them, and I'm very glad that I made the trip. Wow, that's great, uh, and a beautiful 
beautiful part of the uh, country in a in the most optimal month to go up there. <laughs> you don't want to be up there in February. No, no, <laughs> no. And, and I mean, I guess this qualifies as a summer stock theater, but frankly, um, it's it's much more of a regional theater um, in in terms of quality. So uh, so it's really quite nice that um, we still have something to look forward to. And I'm looking forward to see what this season is next year. And I would do it again. I'd drive up uh, just for the day and come right back um, and do nothing else and uh, have a wonderful time of it. All right. Um... So we uh, this time of the year, we don't have a ton of things to review, and that kind of wraps up our review section. But I wanted to get your thoughts uh, on a few other things that are happening here. First of all, this week we heard the uh, groundbreaking, internet-breaking news that Laura Benanti is going to replace Lauren Ambrose in Broadway's My Fair Lady. So uh, are we all going back to see it? Uh, Jenna, sounds like you are. Uh, I will have to sell a kidney, but I will be there. Uh, uh, I'm very excited to see that yeah um, a lot of people thought it was going to happen uh, to begin with and it's very nice that she's assuming the role I mean she ain't going to get no awards for this one Um, but um, because the replacement Tony never really happened but uh, sure everybody thought that Laura Bedanti would be terrific in My Fair Lady and I bet she's going to show us that she uh, will be you know way back when there's a theater in uh, Morris Township, New Jersey, called the Bickford, and the artistic director, a fabulous guy named Walter, uh, Walker Joyce, uh, called me up and said, um, we're doing She Loves Me, and I'm telling you, this girl just walked in out of nowhere. Her name is Laura Benanti, and she is really terrific. I think you're really going to be impressed. I mean, she's only 19 years old, but we're giving her Amalia because she she really seemed as if she could be really phenomenal with it. Um, and I said, oh, great, good. Next day he called me and said, she's not doing it. She uh, was cast um, as the postulant in The Sound of Music and in the ensemble. Uh, and so she had to take the Broadway job. And I said, oh, that's too bad. You know, And it, uh, what was amazing to me is when Laura Benanti took over the role of Maria, it's amazing she got it and yet if you know who Laura Benanti is and her talent it's not amazing she got it at all at all at all and uh, going to see her do it at that point Richard Chamberlain was playing Captain Von Trapp and I am telling you the scene where she tells him off you know you know, not a child uh, knows more than you think all that all, all that's by God, you know, telling off Richard Chamberlain. I mean, she was phenomenal in that scene. So um, I have heard from day one how wonderful uh, she was, and uh, she is, and she certainly is going to be a wonderful Eliza Doolittle. I am 100% certain of that. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to go back and see her, too. I'll go with you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, Laura's been having some uh, hosting duties as of late uh, in the last couple of years with uh, Drama Desk. So uh, we hope that uh, we're able to that this this show does not interfere with her ability to come back. (laughs) Say say it'd be uh, it'd be nice if she did, Um, and uh, it'd be also be nice uh, if she's still in the show when she's doing it. Um, It'd be nice uh, promoting the show as well. But um, you know, Eliza Doolittle, I really believe, is the most difficult role in the musical theater canon for a woman uh, because she has to be so many things. You know, she has to be the gutter snipe. She has to be the person with ambition. She has 
to be the person who's frustrated. She has to be the person who becomes a lady but still hasn't got it yet. She becomes the lady. She becomes self-actualized. Uh, she becomes her own human being. And um, and in this production, <laughs> she certainly is stronger th- at the end of the show than she is in most other productions, for better or worse. I mean, you, you, there are certainly dissenting opinions on uh, how she handles – or how Bartlett Sher has asked her to handle the last scene. That said, um, you know, I do believe Laura Bernanti is going to be easily up to the task. And then uh, aside from Laura replacing uh, in My Fair Lady, we have a lot of things coming up in the fall here. Uh, do you, do you, either one of you have something that you're especially looking forward to? Any uh, shows that are coming up this fall? Well, let me talk about uh, a few of the things that are coming up uh, that should give you both a list of what's hum- what's happening on Broadway. I don't have the off-Broadway list pulled together, but Bernard Hamlet is opening up September 25th. The Nap is opening up. Lifespan of a Fact, The Ferryman, The Waverly Gallery, Torch Song, The Transfer from Second Stage, American Sun, King Kong, The Prom, The Illusionists, which was uh, more news this week. They're going to jump in for a holiday show. The Share Show, Network, and To Kill a Mockingbird. So certainly To Kill a Mockingbird Network, I'm really interested in seeing. I'm interested in seeing the share show because it's got quite a cast in it. King Kong, the uh, the Australian production, the world-renowned uh, 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 ape has made it from down under up to the uh, the Broadway theater. And I've been seeing a lot of photographs of uh, well, the, have puppet, you? the puppet ah. of the ape uh, uh, coming up and very tall. I mean, I would think 16 to 20 feet tall, uh, uh, you know, a uh, very large ape with a full-size man standing next to him. Uh, so we have a lot of things coming up. Uh, All right. A few a few perceptions here, uh, for better or worse. Um, this will not be the first time that a puppet of King Kong appears on Broadway. No, um, mm-hmm. you know, yes, way back in the 70s. Um, Maureen Stapleton did a play called The Secret Affairs of Mildred Wilde, and uh, she was somebody who was obsessed with the movies, and uh, the second act ended, it was a three-act play, the second act ended actually with King Kong coming up over her apartment. Um, the play didn't last long. It was by Paul Zindel, the guy who wrote uh, Effective Marigolds, and... Um, so, uh, but the thing about King Kong that interests me is if you go on IBDB, they always tell you what the show is, comedy, drama, musical, and it's described as a musical, but then there's a comma and it says spectacle. So it's not just a musical, it's a spectacle. So that's uh, really something. As far as um, some of the other shows that you mentioned, I am very much looking forward to Bernhard Hamlet uh, because Jenna McTeer's in it. And um, here she is playing the Divine Sarah. Now, it is true that Fred Ebb might think the Divine Sarah was Sarah Lee, uh, as the song goes. But um, no, the Divine Sarah was uh, Sarah Bernhardt, an actress. And here she is taking on the role of Hamlet, um, which certainly women did not do in her era, which was way back when. So um, the nap has nothing to do with taking a nap. Um, It deals with the fabric that is on a pool table, snooker table, because we're in London or in England anyway. And so it's, you know, when you rub um, the uh, 
the surface of a pool table and then you move your hand back and you feel it go the other way well that's the nap so um so that's uh, going to be um it's a very acclaimed play a transsexual involved and um <clears throat> Alexandra Billings, um, who's the real thing, is uh, going to be uh, doing that. So the Waverly Gallery is going to bring Elaine May back. Um, and uh, you know, my trivia question a couple of weeks ago involved her, that here she is. She's going to be back in the theater where it all began for her with Mike Nichols and Elaine May, the Golden Theater. And um, she's playing an art gallery owner who has Alzheimer's. So um, we'll see how that plays out. But um what I'm also interested in, <clears throat> because uh, Jez Butterworth um, showed me with Jerusalem what a great playwright he is, is the ferryman. So, um, and this is about the Irish Republican uprising and um, about 16 people that they killed and um, didn't make it easy for the people uh, relative to know what happened. So. Um, and yeah, yeah, the prom, you say, OK, well, this is going to be be about kids in a prom. But if again, if you look at IBDB, what you find is that um, they describe the characters. So, all right, you get student banned from the prom. Okay. Head of the student council who has a secret. I mean, that's what it literally says if you call it IBDB. But there's also Tony winner and drama desk winner. Beth Level plays the Tony winner. I guess that's typecasting, you know. I mean, she's done. <laughs> and Brooke Sesmaskis plays the Drama Desk winner. So um, I get a feeling this might be very much like. Um, oh, because also there's a Broadway press agent with a plan. So uh, this sounds a little to me like that 1941 musical Best Foot Forward, where um, a, a woman star who isn't doing very well, her press agent decides to bring her to uh, a college so that uh, she can get publicity uh, before their big deal. Uh, their big dance, and um, which is really nice. I mean, in those days, there were B movies, and this movie actress is described as queen of the bees uh, because she um, never gets the chance really to be in um, big movies. So, and what you got to remember about <clears throat> the, um, the prom is the Casey Nicholas directing, and that will mean he has four shows on Broadway, and he will uh, if if the prom runs. Um, uh, he'll have four for a long time to come because the other one is the Book of Mormon, Mean Girls, and Aladdin. They're still doing, I mean, the Book of Mormon been around for a long time now, but still doing extraordinarily well. Seats are still not easy to get. And um, Mean Girls uh, is selling out and Aladdin almost is. So um, I, I, I don't think we have to take up a collection for Casey Nicola. <laughs> All right, Jenna, anything you're looking forward to this uh, this fall? All of those. Uh, yeah, the ones that you mentioned, I'm also really excited for Lifespan of a Fact. Uh, and I've really enjoyed, uh, well, I mean, the cast is just, you can't get better. Uh, Sherry Jones, Bobby Cannavale, I really think Bobby Cannavale is one of the most underrated actors we have. Just watching him move from, uh, you know, a golden era film star in uh, what was that the big cut a few years ago to playing in it yeah uh, he he blends into his performances so effortlessly i really am always very impressed at the, his range i think he does wonderful work uh, sherry jones is sherry jones she is amazing in anything she does uh daniel radcliffe i really have admired his work on the stage and i hope he finally gets that tony nomination uh that he has not yet managed to get in his uh, uh three previous broadway outings 
I think he gets better and better. Uh, and I really enjoy seeing him. Also, I'm just excited as you know, my day job is editing and writing uh, articles. So it's a play about a fact checker uh, really, really <laughs> speaks to me. I mean, hours I have spent telling people saying, no, can you verify that? Can you please oh, just explain yeah. to me about, oh, I sympathize. So I, I'm going to be sitting there saying, no, it's not like that. No, no, no. He, he wouldn't be doing that. Maybe they got <laughs> so, it right. <laughs> I hope they did. I really, I mean, I haven't read the book that uh, this is based on, um, but uh, I, I imagine they'll have it very accurate. I'm just, I'm excited to see that one uh, just for the cast and then for the subject matter. I think it'll be, I hope it'll be a lot of fun. And, and isn't it wonderful that Daniel Radcliffe, as you say, denied three times for three appearances, uh, hasn't said, well, what the hell with you, Broadway. I'm not coming back. You don't appreciate me that he's doing it because he's really interested in acting on stage and feels the play is obviously worthy. So good for him. Yeah. You know, there, there are two kinds of actors I found. Uh, there are those who take themselves seriously and there are those who uh, take themselves seriously. Good for and you. I, I really think he takes the work seriously. Uh, he has taken a lot of risks and a lot of shows that he's done. He always does something different with every performance. Uh, he, he challenges himself and, you know, he's not gotten, he's not doing this for the awards. I mean, that's, that seems to be clear. He's doing this because he wants the, uh, he wants to challenge and he wants to do good work and he does good work. I absolutely, I'm impressed by him consistently on the stage. He has great stage presence. I mean, I will be fully honest. I walked into Equus uh, 10 years ago thinking, oh, this uh, movie star kid is going to try his hands on the stage. Well, we'll just see how this goes. And I was blown away. He had fantastic stage presence. He had fantastic concentration. Mm -hmm. He made mm -hmm. the character wonderfully compelling. And I was very impressed. And he was 19 years old when he did that. Mm -hmm. so he took the role very seriously. He created a compelling character. There were no winks to the audience. This wasn't about uh, protecting his brand. And that's what you see so much with a lot of actors today. They, they create their brand. And that's what they look to protect. They want to look good. They want followers. They want, you know, they they want to protect their fan base. And he's, I haven't seen that from him. He is always challenging himself as an actor. He is taking on you know, risky roles and he does different things. And good for him. I, I will always go see him in any role I can. I still haven't seen that movie where he played Allen Ginsberg. But I'm... <laughs> Talk about risky roles. Uh, he's always doing good work. So I'm excited to see him, and I admire him as a performer and as an artist. I was reading on Facebook, uh, maybe was it this week or so, uh, somebody posted something about uh, the death of theater has been proclaimed for the last 4,000 years, uh, <laughs> but we, we still keep going. And, and there's something to be said for that, not only for the actors who keep coming back to theater, but for everybody involved in the entire process that keep coming back to theater. Uh, I'm sure that both of you get the same uh, number of press releases that I get every week, and, and that number's in the hundreds of press releases. And yes. there is... Um, and I don't remember the details off the top of my head, other than there is a well-established actress who I can't remember who it was, uh, who has done tons of uh, television and film, who is doing uh, a short two-week run of a play up at Shetler Studios in a 49-seat room. I won't even call it a theater. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think to myself, this person 
does not need to do this at all, but they're doing it for the love of getting mm-hmm. a piece up on its feet. And and may theater go for 4,000 and 4,000 and 4,000 more years. So Absolutely. It's just uh, there. there's something about it that contributes to the soul from every aspect, whether you're sitting in the seats uh, watching the piece or involved in the creation of the piece or performing the piece. There, there seems to be something there that uh, is special to everybody around it. And that it has to be a live experience because, think yeah. about it, F- 50 years ago, Times Square had essentially the same number of Broadway theaters, perhaps even fewer. But how many movie theaters used to be in Times Square? Mm. And where are they now? Where are they now? Yeah. yeah, people need to be with real people watching real people. It's obviously a need because otherwise, and Lord knows, the ticket prices have escalated a great deal in, in the last 50 years. So uh, under those circumstances, you really have to be impressed that um, the Broadway theaters are still standing while the movie theaters are not. And who would have predicted that, really? As I often say in the 50s, if I said to people, All right. I'm mentioning three things. Two will not be around um, at the turn of the century. Um, Broadway, drive-in movies, and westerns on TV. Because Mm -hmm. drive-in movies and westerns on TV were enormous back in the 50s, and there was no indication that they would go away, but they went away. We're still here. Doesn't drive-in movies sort of almost feel like a theatrical experience? Not at all, because you're so uh, isolated and insulated. Oh, that's um, true. And, but I, yeah, and, I, I and think you, of and, you, the... and, and you're turning around, tell your kids to go to sleep, and all that. So I mean, really, <laughs> <laughs> and the sound is terrible from those speakers and all that, and they sometimes don't work, and you have to go to another space. Uh, no wonder, really, they die. And of course, yeah. real estate being more precious than it um, was in the past, because you know there are more people, but there's no more land. So that's for another reason why they disappeared, um, because people just need the land for other things. Things. Hmm. Have either one of you gotten a chance, uh, to, totally on a separate th- thought process mm-hmm. here, have you gotten a chance to see Jersey Boys off-Broadway? No. No, no it's, not a case, it's not a case of a chance. Um, I never received an invitation. So, um, yeah, I would have gone in... Yeah, I would have gone in a second. So for whatever reason, I'm so uh, interested. I, I haven't either. And it just occurred to me, maybe this is a thought process was that, you know, um, uh, drive-ins make me think of the 50s and 60s and the Jersey Boys ah, came into my uh-huh. head and things like oh, that. Sure. But I'm interested to hear what uh, how Jersey Boys sounds if they're using a lot of miking or if they're going to do it acoustically or things like that. So we have to figure out, we, we all three of us, we should go up, walk up to the Jersey Boys box office and say we're here to see it. Field trip, field trip, Yes. <laughs> All right, so let's wrap up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can find, find our podcasts, you can listen to Broadway Radio's podcasts. Contact information for Peter, for Jenna, for me, can be found at Broadway Radio, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including the very important and special, the best songs cut from the best musicals sung by the best singers who never sang them at 54 Below. And that's coming up. So uh, get your tickets to that. That's quite a lineup I'm checking out here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, the question was the film version of one of the earliest Tony-winning musicals opened on a holiday. The scheduling showed that the movie executives were keenly aware of the plot, 
What's the show in the holiday? And the film was The Pajama Game, which opened on Labor Day, which fits because, of course, there's a labor struggle in The Pajama Game. That's what the whole plot is about. So Seth Christenfeld was the first to get it, and Jack Leshner was the second. So this week's question. A hit Broadway musical's original leading man left long ago. The person who's now playing his role has the same surname. What are the two different first names, the same last name, and the show? Okay. If you have the answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Janetessa Fox and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. I sold my body, but I never sold my soul. I've learned I don't need anyone. It's me who's in control. They can take away my innocence, but they can't erase my pride.